watchers in the fourth dimension. Evil is here. They're dead. All dead. To see all the time is not a good thing. Hello, you are listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And may I recommend the Crystal Water? It is a fine vintage. Welcome back to our returning listeners and a special welcome to those of you who are listening to us for the first time. Welcome. If you want to take a listen back, this is our seventh episode. You can hear our thoughts on the first six stories of Doctor Who on your podcasting app of choice. Today, the Sensorites. This was happening. Vietnam was beginning to ramp up. Britain is decolonizing, and that's something that I think is very is key to this story. Actually, during the broadcast of this story, Britain grants independence to its very last colony in Africa, the Gambia, which incidentally was also its very first colonial possession in Africa. We're seeing more and more of the space race with satellite launches from both the USA and the Soviet Union. And actually, very importantly, from a US perspective, the uh, Civil Rights Act is passed during the recording of this story or I should say the broadcast of this story. Behind the scenes here, this story was actually originally intended to be the first season closer, but production was continued in order to build up a stockpile of episodes, and the decision was made to instead only have a four-week break between seasons one and season two, and instead the Reign of Terror became the season finale. The Sensorites was written by Peter R. Newman. This is his first and only credit on Doctor Who. He would never write for the show again, and would actually never write for British TV again as he suffered from terrible writer's block, which does not come through in any way, shape, or form in this story. After this, he actually took up a job as a porter at the Tate Gallery in London and uh, died in 1975 from an accidental fall at work. The director for this one, we actually had two directors. So the first ep- uh, the first four episodes were directed by Mervyn Pinfield, who was also the associate producer of the show. He started his career as a theatre producer and then joined the BBC in the 1950s to work on live drama. And he actually invented an early version of the teleprompter, which he called the Pinny Prompter. And he died in May 1966 at the age of just 54. Episodes 5 and 6 were directed by Frank Cox. He had previously directed the second episode of The Edge of Destruction, and these would be his final contributions to Doctor Who. But he would still go on in directing TV and, and would direct episodes of Doomwatch, Paul Temple, and EastEnders, amongst other things. In terms of the incidental music, Norman Kay returns to us. He, this is his third and final contribution. So he had previously scored uh, the very first serial, An Unearthly Child, and he also scored The Keys of Marinus. Outside of Doctor Who, he would also be the main composer on Out of the Unknown. And then the final backstage crew member of note is the designer. So we see Raymond Cusick come back. So this is his fourth of his 10 outings as designer on the show. And he had previously worked on The Daleks, The Edge of Destruction, and The Keys of Marinus. So we, we have a pretty strong behind the scenes crew. So from that, we will move into actually talking about the story itself and the way we like to start this out is with a brief summary this week it's my turn our heroes land on a spaceship where aliens steal the tardis lock inexplicably locking everyone out of the tardis rather than just ensuring that the door is open all of the time meanwhile susan actually advances the plot and the obvious villain is once again extremely obvious said villain advances his plot by the fact that even his own race can't tell each other apart because they all look the same oh no This is not playing on racist stereotypes at all. In the meantime, deranged humans are poisoning the water supply because they're evil colonialists who want to plunder the alien's planet. And some people say that this story isn't a mess at all. How can you say it's a mess? It's got everything you want in it. It has so much depth. So many things. Sensorites? More like sense of shite, know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) So tonight, Riley will be playing the part of the Sensorite Avenger. That's right. I will be defending this serial. I'm so sorry. When you mentioned that this was originally intended to be the season finale, I'm kind of glad it's not. More on it next time, but we'll end up with, you know, a romp with Napoleon and his contemporaries. But more on that next time. I knew we were in for a lot of filler when the first five minutes was a recap of previous adventures. Oh, with the group bonding? They probably had that scene written because they thought it was the season closer, so they wanted to do a little like, oh, look how far we've come kind of thing. I like to do it at the beginning of the next season, not at the very end of this one. Or if it's a good enough show, you don't need it at all. True. (laughs) Wow, brutal.
So that little recap in the TARDIS between the main characters, there is that one line that the Doctor says that I think is absolutely fantastic. He's talking to them and he says, It all started out as a mild curiosity in a junkyard, and now it's turned into quite the spirit of adventure. And to me, that just sums up the show and is really just an absolutely fantastic piece of writing for the Doctor. He is kind of painting the beginnings very kindly when one could say it's more like this started out as a really, really grumpy asshole man that was upset that these two meddling teachers got involved in his business he does play down the kidnapping an awful lot <laughs> what's a mild bit of kidnapping amongst friends i also found it funny that barbara made a comment about why do they ever like ever leave the tardis like what you just gonna sit on a ship all day it just seemed kind of an odd statement to come from barbara yeah particularly given that you know more recently the crew has particularly by the time we got to the keys of marinus they're a bit more eager to actually venture out and explore than they were in early stories and then suddenly we have barbara saying a line like that which feels a little out of place i mean do you feel like that might be just like maybe a little writer's joke honestly i think where that comes from is this was the first story to be written after any of the other stories had already been broadcast by the time Peter R. Newman was writing this, An Unearthly Child and the Dalek were being broadcast or already had been broadcast. So he's got this view of where Barbara and Ian are more unwilling travelers than they are in the other stories by this point. And I think that's where that line comes from. Once we have our little recap, the scanner is broken so they can't see what's outside, so they're venturing out into the unknown. I'm trying to make this sound good, guys. Help me out here. All right, I will, I will argue with you right now. This first episode, the way they set the table and how they close it on the, in this first episode, Strangers in Space, it's the best one of, of the entire serial. No, okay, if you're going to defend it, you have to say it right. Strangers in Space! <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, I do agree with you. They set this up really well. I, I kind of question the logic of why the crew appears dead, but it's really good at getting you into the story. Right. Well, I mean, it sets it's a nice, cool. yeah, it's it's a nice, creepy little atmosphere. It's it's great. Can I talk about how they have more circles on set? Raymond Cusick does love his circles. I don't know if anyone else noticed, I, I'm jumping ahead a little, but when we actually meet the sensorites, their feet are circular. Yes. Yes. All right. So we'll come back to that. So we meet these people who appear to be dead. They're just in very long sleeps. That's but, kind of what I feel like I need at the end of a long week. But then Captain Useless wakes up. <laughs> yes. What I found interesting is the uh, they emphasize the heartbeat. That was a nice bit of sound design. It was just like an inch. It, it was a. It was a because you're not going to notice the heartbeat necessarily as an audience. So it was just kind of nice that it was like, oh, okay, this this makes a lot more sense. So they're out, they're starting to talk to Maitland and Carol. The Doctor has that line where he claims that he doesn't meddle. No, actually, can we point out one thing that's very interesting? While everyone else of our little TARDIS crew seems to be concerned, or like, maybe we should look into this, maybe we should look into that, the Doctor it has this like attitude that practically is just like, hey, just flush him out the airlock, let's just get the hell out of here. He actually has that attitude for quite a bit of, of this first episode of the serial. Okay, well, let's go. Nothing we can do here. Come on, people. Back to the car. Let's go. Things to do. <laughs> but then... There's this mystery. As they're talking to Maitland and Carol, there's this mystery around what the sensorites actually want, right? So they don't let the humans leave, but they don't attack them, and they periodically feed them. I mean, it later comes out that the sensorites are just very much afraid of them, which our friends at the Flight Through Entirety podcast refer to as they keep them there in orbit of their own planet, even though they're afraid of them. This is why I keep a beehive outside my bedroom. <laughs> we have to make these characters as sympathetic as possible. And so the writing has it so that some of them are unwilling to defend themselves via killing. So I think, and especially as the introduction to these like aliens, that's why it was done that. Yeah. But they have no problem with uh, John completely you know, making his brain into Swiss cheese. Though. Be nice to Renfield. I like him. John adds to the creepiness of this first episode. Incidentally, John, the actor Stephen Dartnell, was previously in Doctor Who as Yartek in The Keys of Marinus. He enjoys his rubber fetish gear. <laughs> so we meet John, who has had his brain turned to mush by the sensorites, and he's kind of crazy. He menaces Susan and Barbara. The music in that is fantastic. 
very tense. I'm going to confess most of my comments on the music in the serial were shrubbery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you can't be disappointed. You can't enjoy a little bit a nice, dramatic, sudden dramatic music. Oh, oh, I enjoyed the shrubbery chord, but it happened just a few times where someone would say something mildly dramatic, and I'm like, there it is. Yeah, yeah, they did. They definitely went to that well a lot. Yeah. Good times, though. The problem is we have Norman Kay coming back after in the Aztecs. We had someone who would go on to win a BAFTA. The ability of Norman Kay versus the ability of the, the gentleman in the previous serial is noticeably lesser. I agree with you on that. I mean, there were elements that were good, but as Don said, it's like it wasn't fleshed out enough. Yeah. So John doesn't attack them. He just breaks down and cries instead. John is portraying the role of Susan in this episode. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and Susan is basically portraying the sensorized greatest threat because they yeah. don't like noise. This could have been one episode. They locked the sensorized in a dark room with Susan, who was terrified, and they would have given them anything they wanted just to be let out of it. <laughs> so here's where I think this first episode doesn't make sense to me. After John breaks down and cries, we come back and find that the sensorites are close, right? There's a noise that's caused by their ships, they're approaching, but they've already been on board and stolen the TARDIS lock. How did they leave in complete silence? And on top of that, Carol can sense their presence, and she didn't before. Or were they just still there? I think, well, you don't even know how many sensorites we're talking about here. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, Carol being able to sense their presence is where that really falls apart for me because she couldn't before. And, and now they've got a spaceship coming up to them and, and she's like, oh, my gosh, the sensorites. I can sense them. This happens every time except a minute ago when it didn't. Right. Well, I mean, it's in their name. I mean, you can sense them because they're the sensorites. <sighs> that joke was censor wrong. <laughs> that is not the only pun with that I have in my arsenal. Be prepared. Moving on, we suddenly show up in <laughs> yes, a uh, in a Twilight Zone episode. Oh, I know, but I love that bit. I love that bit so much. I think it's great. Wonderfully creepy. Yeah, it's a phenomenal shot. It's a fantastic cliffhanger, and it's just so out there and what the hell. I was more like, if they came on a ship, why the hell is he standing outside? He wants to look at he wants to observe them. He wants to or he wants to scare them. Uh Creeping up behind somebody, you can scare them just as well. This strikes as me as like, oh, guys, we, we need to have a cliffhanger. Um, you stand outside the ship. That's great. It did add to the mystery when it was a different sensor right at the beginning of the next episode, though. Just going back to what you were saying, Riley, about having seen this before and making that a bit more palatable for you. I've seen this story multiple times, and the first time would have been around 2000 when it had the UK VHS release, and it just hasn't improved for me at all over the course of 18 and a half years. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> there are some good moments, though. I think we make jokes about Ian and his love of violence. It's in the first or second episode of this when the doctor tells them, you know, don't attack them. And Ian just like, so what? What do you mean? Can't I use violence to defend myself? And really overreacts a little bit in a very hilarious way. <laughs> Ian's just developed that bloodlust. He just can't let he it go. Has. Yeah, he just can't get away from it. So we move into episode two, The Unwilling Warriors, where we have a different sensor, right? Maitland and Carol just freeze, which is great. Thanks, guys. You're really helpful. The Doctor and Ian help Maitland overcome the control, which is nice. Captain Boring gets to do something. But he complains about it and says it won't do any good. God, he's useless. Incidentally, the actor who played him, Lorne Cossette, he doesn't do anything else on TV or on film for another 18 years after this, before reappearing in a show called Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Wait, that was, I remember, no, I know that show. This seems to make him just give up on actual filmed acting for 18 years. And then to get back to the plot, I should say, John is receiving psychic, psychic instructions from the sensorites, but is fighting them. What's going on with the sensorites at this point, guys? They're just floating around. They're just trying to spook them. Their onesies are just on too tight. Those costumes, they are not flattering. With those round feet and everything, like just wearing that costume as an actor would have just been so bizarre. Well, like, that's why they have those masks on to hide their shame. <laughs> and they look like they're walking sacks of potatoes. I, I kept going, okay, is this supposed to be 
flesh? Or are we on the planet of the onesies? What also keep in mind, but also keep in mind these costumes play an important role in that they are the only way for the audience to identify which sensorite from the other sensorite. And as we find out later, that is how the sensorites themselves are able to fool other sensorites as to which sensorite they are. Okay, okay. If your society can be taken over by the local guild of tailors and seamstresses in an afternoon, you need to rethink your society. Sounds like a good time to be a tailor. Right? <sighs> I actually thought that the simplistic costumes were kind of cool. They're very, very 60s. Can we discuss the faces? Could they even see out those things? I'm not sure. Were there, was there facial hair, like a wig? that was glued onto their chin and then, like, pasted upward. It's some sort of weird albino Amish thing going on, <laughs> and I don't understand. You guys have put way more thought into this than I ever wanted to. And then once we get into the, you know, meat of this cereal and you get up close and have scenes with them, it's just, it's disconcerting. That, and I think, like, the really long eyelashes, yeah. One of the critics, probably Sandifer, talks about how the facial masks really plays off kind of stereotypes of what British people would assume that people from China, and particularly the old wise men, that that kind of trope might look like. So you pair that with the fact that supposedly they all look the same, and that's really quite offensive when I think about it. Yeah, I think that was Sandifer who talks about that, because she's um, she's very keen on how this is an anti-colonialist story, basically an anti-colonialism story, but there's that one thing that doesn't quite work, and that's the fact that the sensorites can't even recognize each other because they all look the same. So I thought the vocal choices uh, were quite interesting. I especially liked the sensorite who had like the very weak and feeble voice and and it was just hilarious to me i thought i thought that was done intentionally in order for us to be able to know which one was which so they're on board everyone's kind of scared of them and our favorite character otherwise known as barbara works with susan to take the lead on how to resist them and i'm delighted that susan is being useful here barely a scream she made a noise but it wasn't a dramatic moment i don't think She's, Susan's making choices here. So we have Ian's theory that John has found something and that he's been silenced by the sensorites. And the doctor figures it out because he's the doctor. And there's a very rare mineral called molybdenum. Molybdenum! Well, they seem to have a lot of it on the sense sphere, which is a really lazy name for your planet. Very boring and functional. Perhaps the planet name came before the their name so it was originally the sensphere so what would you call the people from the sensphere that's true think about that i've offended the sensorites i thought you liked them incidentally riley's not alone in his love for the sensorites <laughs> yes and his name is russell t davies hey all right <laughs> i knew i had someone on my side so the ood sphere which is the home planet of the Ood, is mentioned as being close to the homeworld of the Sensorites. So, Riley, you are not alone, even if the rest of us are not so hot on this story. All I know is that I got a Doctor Who showrunner on my side. Who do you guys have? <laughs> Probably every other showrunner who's not Russell T. Davies. So as soon as the Doctor says molybdenum, Maitland and Carol come under psychic attack, so he's clearly along the right lines. And so Ian and Barbara go Sensorite hunting through the ship, are we getting to the point where the doctor uh, kind of goes a little bit crazy and eventually gets to the point where he's like, do as I say, basically? I think that's episode two. Episode three. No, there, no there's, they're at the end of it's, this episode. No. She's right. Yeah. Yeah, and then they fight a little more in, at the beginning of the next episode. Sorry. I, I had this twice, yeah. It happens first in this one, and then he does a repeat of do as I say in the next episode. Does it do as I say to Barbara? In this one, Susan's being useful and says, you know what, I'll go down with him to save my friends and these people. And then the doctor just browbeats her and it's awful. And of course, it's Susan who's the one who's telepathically contacted by the sensorites. So for once, Susan's given the job of driving the plot forward. The sensorites make a comment about how once more they trusted Earthmen to their cost. So some good foreshadowing there. Have any of you guys kind of thought about what it must be like to be watching this in 1964? 
actually having to watch this in real time and there are these little hints in episode two you know you don't find the resolution for another four weeks i appreciate it i like it a lot well spoiler for an episode that comes later when you find out that the water is being poisoned where the the foreshadowing is so not subtle you immediately realize what's going to happen right after they right after they said oh he didn't have the same water i'm like okay well then there's your there's your problem anyway we we end the episode with susan agreeing to go to the sense sphere and we have already like covered you know the way that they stopped the sensorites from creeping around on the ship and actually be able to start a conversation with them is through turning out the lights right i just wanted to point out their weakness one more time if we haven't talk to me about that because to me that makes no sense Considering that they that one of them was floating out in space. Yeah, that's also a problem. Scientifically, why on earth would evolution work like that? Yeah, because a creature would work from darkness towards light. It's like maybe they're supposed to be so evolved that they've been so far away from darkness that I um I'm I'm reaching here. I'm doing my best. Wait, wait, wait. So so you're you're questioning the dark, but you just sort of hand wave the fact that they knew to steal the TARDIS lock within seconds of their arrival. Uh, details, details. <laughs> All right, so Susan takes takes a, a very strong stance, and it's like, I'm going down there. I'm going to help them. It's wonderful. It's a, the writing has provided her with something to do before the doctor belittles her like a little kid. Yeah. So does that move us into episode three, Hidden Danger? Yeah. All right, so we start with Susan defying the Doctor, or not. Making a very odd comment, because the comment was, since I, like, since I can use telepathy, they trust me, and that just makes absolutely no sense. Julie, that's a really good point, given that we later find out how their society is built on trust, and not necessarily in a good way. It makes them rather naive. So just because she can talk to them in the way they talk to each other, they assume they can trust her. But they also talk out loud, and they need discs to do the telepathy. Also true. And how much trust can you have if you build a frickin' disintegrator? At this stage, we have the really unintentionally hilarious line of, if they try anything, turn the light out again. (laughs) (laughs) Threaten them with a slightly sharpened stick. I love that. <laughs> I, I know that wasn't meant to be funny, but I lo- laugh out loud when that was said. And later on, we have a scene where the doctor gets very upset with them and he raises his voice and it's, he raises his voice, not even that loudly or like in a, in a high pitch, but it like causes them pain. And Susan's like, please, please don't do that. And, and I just think how it's so funny how we've gone so far from first episode, mysterious threat, to please don't talk loud, it'll hurt them. <laughs> please use your inside voice. <sighs> <sighs> yeah, and of course we find out that the Sensorites had had a bad experience with humans ten years earlier and that they've just been dying off ever since. The humans shouted at them a lot caused them much pain stole their light bulbs it was terrible like all colonial forces i'm sure that the humans brought guns germs and steel it's that kind it's that same concept it's you know it's very much drawing off of that colonial narrative and i think while the aztecs was maybe a little more subtly anti anti-colonial here this is very overtly anti-colonial in the Aztecs, it's the Westerners show up and bring disease and weapons, whereas here it's the humans show up and bring disease. So anyway, we, we head down towards the planet, the Sense Sphere, and Barbara and Maitland stay on the ship, so no one is crying about Maitland staying on the ship, right? And there he stayed for the next 18 years until he resumed his television career. And, of course, Jacqueline Hill is off on her two-week vacation. Which is very sad. Sad, but probably very well-deserved because she's been carrying the show a a lot of times. All right, so we're down on the Sensphere. And this was something that was kind of commented on with the circles, but the architecture is very similar to that on Scaro and on Marinus. It's all very few straight edges. It's all kind of curves, all lined up. And I'm kind of thinking, Ray... What are you doing, man? 
I don't know. There was a lot more sharpness and straight lines on Scaro. They were not curved. They weren't necessarily 90 degrees, but there were straight lines. This is a lot more That's circular true. and rounded and very interesting looking. I like the background paintings. Gotta fill that backspace in. So we start meeting the senior sensorites. So we meet the first elder who's already admiring the doctor before they've even met. And the city administrator being a loose cannon straight away, bringing in the disintegrator. <laughs> because they're a trusting race. And he breaks the fourth wall talking about killing the humans. Destroy all humans. His whole like people got like taken advantage of by a group of humans. As far as they know, they blew up in the atmosphere. Yeah, they I... should have been blaming space flight, not the humans. That's the question I have on this: is why do they even have a disintegrator? Why do they even have a warrior cast? Hey, disintegrator, you know you maybe need to get rid of some trash. Start <laughs> having to pile up in a landfill, okay? So you give two keys to your trash disintegrator to your elders. Pretty important job. <laughs> the sanitation union thanks you. I mean, the, the, the fact that they're referred to as the warrior caste as well, I mean, that's, I think, a very deliberate colonial parallel, right? So Indian society had castes. And I find it interesting, too, because, like, outside of, like, when the humans showed up, it was just them there, or at least they were led to believe so. I don't know that there's any other race or anything on Sensphere. So it's like, who are they warriors of? Right. And let's say they're good warriors, and they attack, and they frighten their enemies. And their enemies scream. So Which then makes they them lose run away. The battle so they because they the were battle. good at being. <laughs> yeah. They are a brave crew. They will run into any battle unless it's night or maybe getting close to dark. Uh, I just don't think this has been well thought out. So, anyway, the city administrator needs a lozenge and is super bad. And... <laughs> He's a bloodthirsty chap, isn't he? Between him and Toltoxidil from the Aztecs. Toltoxidil! Okay. Any day of the week. There was at least a logic to what he was doing. And this guy is just, uh, I, I did not like this bad guy at all. Now is the summer of our sweet sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> so the first elder agrees to cure John because he recognizes him as a good man, despite John previously wanting to plunder the sense sphere. Because this makes sense. So we have the, the, the second elder, he intervenes on the city administrator's bloodthirsty plans and calls him out, but in a really kind of passive way, because he's kind of a wet blanket. As are his people. I, I mean, I feel like the second elder is a wet blanket, wet even blanket. by sensorite <laughs> standards. Oh. Uh, I don't have words at this point. But we do get some good foreshadowing coming up. Or I say good foreshadowing, it's really, I think, goes back to the extremely not subtle point that you guys were making about the water. <laughs> that that puts the B in subtle. That's what that did. Subtle. <laughs> <laughs> For the benefit of anyone listening who hasn't seen the story, because I know there are a few of you out there who are listening because of loyalty to someone on the recording, so thank you very much. Basically, the doctor's starting to say, well, why are your people dying? And he's starting to already kind of go, yeah, something's not right with the water. And the plot is going, water, water, water. It's all about the water. There's spring water. There's the water from the system. And Ian drinks some of the water that they originally given rather than the fresh spring water. This is not a subtle setup in any way, shape, or form. And no offense, but it was also not exactly the, the best I'm slowly dying of poison acting I've ever seen. Yeah. Also, we at, at this point, slightly between when Ian drinks the water and starts suffering, the first elder gives us an explanation on the emblems of office. <laughs> this is also not subtle. Tell us how Sneech society works, elder. <laughs> Well, we have all these armbands, and if you're wearing a sash, it means this, and if two sashes, it means you're the Grand Poobah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, and by the way, we all look the same. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Was David Whittaker so busy he just didn't bother with this one? You just kind of go, we need to get this in production. I'm, I'm not going to bother editing. Just, just go. That was why I was so, I'm not going to say concerned, but kind of just whatever buy their outfits because i couldn't decide is this supposed to be a onesie that they all wear or are they just all naked except for a, a couple of sashes or a random collar wondering what is this costume supposed to be i think it's a onesie that they all wear that was what i settled on because 
I found the alternative far too horrifying. Well, also, at some point there is an appendage very clearly underneath it, and I will go as far as to say I figured out how to say what I was avoiding saying earlier. One or two of the sensorites really need to be wearing a dance belt. <laughs> oh, yes, please. And also, I would go with the onesie because they don't try to hide, like, the collars or anything. Also true. It just seems an odd choice because it's the exact same color as their mask and all that, and... You know what? I'm I'm sorry I brought it up. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Let us move yes, on. because now we've talked about sensorite manhood. So Ian Strunk had a drink of the city water and is very quickly falling ill, and we get a cliffhanger, bringing us into episode four: a race against death. I think race might be pushing it a bit. <laughs> a leisurely stroll against inconvenience. A slow strut against death. A, a, sure. wonderful, a wonderful action chemistry lab montage against death. <laughs> montage of science. <laughs> so have all of you or any of you seen Team America? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Do you think the science montage might have been improved if, if we re-edited it to put the montage song? Yes, it would. All I know is for an alien race, that Senserite has some excellent calligraphic skills in handwriting. Oh, they're they beautiful. They are terrible at science, but they excel at handwriting. Yeah, they really do. So while the doctor's doing this, the city administrator is like openly defiant, particularly over John's treatment. And John turns around and calls him evil, which I'm kind of like, is it really that simplistic? We saw last time round with Taloxal. He's not inherently evil. He's doing what he deems best to protect his people. And he's almost played that way, whereas I think the city administrator here is just portrayed as being the bad guy. There don't seem to be any shades of grey in that. He, he's just, there's no subtlety. It's... They have to be painted broadly because they, the design of the sensorites, they can't even tell themselves apart. So they have to be drawn broadly for the audience to know who's who, which means that you can't really provide much depth to them. Because if you have a scene where he's like questioning himself or something, it's going to confuse the audience. They're going to say, wait, who is this I... person? I disagree. I think you can give him motivation so at least your audience can understand where he's coming from. But in this, he just, he just better. doesn't have this. I mean, the motivation maybe is implied, but it's not clearly stated. So we have Carol having her conversation with him where he said, where she said, that we wouldn't be able to tell you apart if you switched emble emblems of office. Wow. Carol is a racist. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> like they were spoon feeding us they were spoon feeding the audience into oh hey guess what's gonna happen it's it's the whole show don't tell thing and they're definitely telling it sits very uncomfortably with me that whole piece of dialogue and when it turns out that they can't even tell each other apart i'm going what really yeah yeah <sighs> So speaking of Carol, Ilona Rogers, who plays her, I'm going to... This is her only contribution to Doctor Who in its entire run. And after a few more years, she's done with British TV and actually moves to Australia and New Zealand and then back to Australia. And she ends up in Hercules, The Legendary Journey and in Power Rangers, Dino Charge. I mean, Ow. I just think that's something really, really unexpected. <sighs> so we have some moments of amazing racism. The city administrators openly being defiant because... He's a dick. We have the sensorites writing very nice English and in cursive, and the doctor identifies the poison very, very quickly. As I was watching this, I, I did any of you guys feel the same way? I was kind of feeling like the actual quest for the cure might have been much better filler than some of the stuff we've already had. That seems to be a point to me that would be a much more natural part of the story to pad out. As far as a quest or, or something to accomplish, yes. Exactly. Well, yeah, but Barbara isn't there. True. I have a lot of criticisms with this story, but at least with that, he uses it to go, well, yes, I can cure you, but we need to figure out what the source of this problem is, which leads to them going down to the aqueduct and all that. Yeah. So he's found an antidote and the city administrator catches the second elder, steals his sash of office and threatens his family group. <laughs> we haven't seen a single female sensorite. Do they have women? Asexual reproduction on the sensphere. It's either that or all of these are like the elders and the leaders. And so like the women are probably just off in the corner, like spitting out babies and, you know, just doing womanly things. In the kitchen where in the 1960s they belonged. Um, and somehow wearing heels with circle feet. 
But they still have those terrible beards. <laughs> We're like dwarves. Or gnomes. So we have the poison. We have the, we, we've resolved what the poison is, and it's nightshade. And it's in the water. The doctor goes down to the aqueducts, where the sensorites believe there are monsters. Ian, despite only just being cured, shows the same bravado he had in the Daleks on insisting on going down to find the doctor. Because he's Ian and he is the square-jawed hero. I actually have a note in here. City Administrator, is he the most raving villain we've had so far? I was actually rather surprised that the whole poisoning thing wasn't a plot by him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of surprising. Going back to the poison, how is Deadly Nightshade the poison? Like, is it native to the sense sphere, or did the humans bring it with them the first time they came? And if they did, why are they carrying it? Has it has to be native, otherwise it makes even less sense. Maybe, maybe the humans brought it in the intention to poison them in order to kill them all off, in order to get access to the malignant. That is a stupid no. plan! Uh and also, there are other things that are within the nightshade family. Tomatoes, eggplant, peppers, things like that. So, couldn't be too far off of they could somehow, if they had those foods with them, figure something out and create nightshade-type symptoms. So, the Doctor's being threatened in the tunnels and we don't see what it is, and that's our cliffhanger. I really like the lighting on the Doctor in this scene. And especially, like, picking up in the next one where it like finishes off that visual it's so stunning i actually really like it i mean much as three out of four of us have been giving a lot of flack particularly to the last couple of episodes this is a really good cliffhanger it's well filmed to your point guys it's pretty well written it draws you in you know what is down there what is attacking the doctor and then at the beginning of episode five kidnap What's knocked him unconscious? I, I love it. I wish the rest of the story was this good. Done out of necessity. I mean, think about it. Outside of this little, like, detour of a monster being down there around the aqueducts, how else could they have ended the episode? And so we're into episode five, Kidnap. And the Doctor's knocked unconscious. We don't see by what. And Susan, with Ian, seems to find something down there that's important. But Ian ignores her because she's Susan. So the Doctor is unconscious, and his only injury is a rip in his jacket. It was a pretty sweet jacket, though. It was. Did anyone else notice he mentions his heart? Singular? What? Former viewer. I'm out of here. <laughs> well, I mean, this goes back to in one of our earlier episodes where Don commented that by this stage, a, <laughs> a lot of the uh, mythology as we know it now hadn't been invented by this stage. So there is no Gallifrey. There are no Time Lords. And the idea that the Doctor doesn't have more than one heart, or that the Doctor has more than one, hasn't been invented yet. And this actually becomes quite a big thing in some of the spin-off media. You know, they, they come up with all sorts of reasons, like the first incarnation of any Time Lord only has one heart, and they get their second heart once they regenerate for the first time, and all this kind of stuff to try and explain the, the discontinuity. I think that's just going a bit overboard. There is a such thing as people misspeak. Yeah. I mean, why not? You just, you know, meant to say hearts and you just said heart. So at this point in the show, I think we've got very used, uh, used to Barbara being the one driving the plot forward, but she's not here. So in her place, we finally have the doctor being the one to piece things together, take the lead and drive the plot forward. And I, at the end of this, I want to come back to the importance of this story because i think for this reason it's very important even if i don't think it's very good but we really start to see the doctor stepping up to the plate i mean one could argue that this episode in particular before you know we had discussed in this first season how the doctor was kind of our um our antagonist and for the series as a whole so far of like and now all of a sudden he's like you said turning more into the doctor that we know now through years and years of the show tat wood and lawrence miles talk about this and, and one of my favorite quotes from their book is they say ironically in a script where everyone gets back to their character notes we begin with a scene about how much they've all changed after everything they've been through they haven't it's the doctor who's been rewritten and how he comes into the spotlight as never before and that's really i think what we're seeing here in in these episodes without barbara just had to get barbara out of the way I know. <laughs> we also get the sensorites actually explaining what happened to John. 
I found it pretty funny when I was like, so effectively they just gave him extreme anxiety. I can relate to that. <laughs> and at the same time, we have the city administrator ranting and raging even more. He, To me, he really sounded like a dictator. Like, really sounded like he was kind of stepping up to that plate. He's he's just a very nasty chap. Hey, chap, that almost humanizes him. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he gets into a fight with the the second elder, and the second elder breaks the key, and then the city administrator and his crony just kill him and plan to blame the doctor. Thanks, gentlemen. Also, did anyone notice, kind of, while this was all going on, there was also a scene where Ian and Susan are standing around, openly wondering what Barbara is up to on the spaceship. And I was just thinking, yeah, me too, I'm also bored. Hey, she was up there with Mr. Fun, Captain Maitland, so I'm sure she was having a great time. So somehow throughout the majority of this, I had a few notes of, what happened to Barbara? Because I kind of missed that she just stayed up there somehow. And I'm just like, I'm so confused. Where'd Barbara go? Uh, well, we get her back in episode six, so we're not far away now. Oh, it's so close. I know. So we have the city administrator impersonating the second elder. The sensorites give the doctor a very nice cloak. I really liked that cloak. I kind of wanted to know how exactly they're making cloaks when they just do sashes and weird collars. We don't see anyone else wear anything like that. We do not. Um, so that actually conveniently becomes a plot point very, very quickly, almost like it was planned to be, and there was no foreshadowing whatsoever this time. Good job, Peter Newman. Subtle. Which allows, you know, the the, the whole accusation against the Doctor killing the, the second Elder is debunked because he doesn't have his jacket, and the sensorite hoodlum who accuses him claims he was wearing his jacket, and the city administrator throws his hoodlum under the bus. And then the TARDIS crew suggests the administrator is appointed as the second elder. Jesus Christ. <laughs> obvious villain <sighs> is obvious, and no one notices. Uh, yeah. Riley, do you have anything to say in defense here? I will say that every serial has its low points. <laughs> just one? And this one just keeps on digging. This part here is, is weaker than uh, most of the serial, and uh, you just have to brush past that and get and focus more on to the tourist crew going down back into the aqueducts, because that leads us to something a little bit more interesting and right. less terrible. Is it, though? Is it? So... As soon as the city administrator is appointed, he's immediately a dick to Ian. <laughs> like, immediately! <laughs> you will address me as sir. Let's uh, do the power trip. Come on. I wish Ian had just yelled at him. <laughs> just, these are not threatening creatures. Just, and that's it. It's over. And then from there, he's in the right place at the right time to deflect constantly until Susan... Again, I wish I'd been counting how many times she does something useful in this story, because it's probably more than the rest of Doctor Who put together that she's in. Actually coaxes it out of John that the evil sensorite is the city administrator, and basically they've screwed themselves. Cue dramatic music. The Doctor and Ian decide to go back into the aqueducts, and the city administrator sabotages their weapons, which... The Doctor says he's never liked weapons anyway, so that's a nice little trait. He prefers rocks. Sharp, pointy rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. And then we get Carol being kidnapped as the cliffhanger. Oh, but you missed one of the best lines. Oh, what did I miss? The thick, juicy steak to small, juicy fruit. I thought that was going to be added to the camp count, because that sounded really campy to me. <laughs> Hash uh, hashtag <laughs> thick. <laughs> <laughs> We're into episode six, a desperate venture. Uh, so final episode, and we start with the second elder having kidnapped Carol, the new second elder, I should say, kidnapped Carol, and he forces her to write a note. The CAD. I hate that it's happening because, okay, yes, let's kidnap the useless damsel who hasn't really done too much to advance the plot. And what she's writing and what they're saying that she's doing doesn't make any sense after, you know, the conversations they've just had. So it's just kind of like, I don't understand what's happening here. Yeah. 
So much of my notes is just what? <laughs> They're not the sensorites. Really, that don't make no sensorites. <laughs> <laughs> Fight that counselor. So firstly, we get Barbara back and she has a magnificent space tan. And she comes in and she's like, oh, yeah, by the way, Carol just got kidnapped. Just thought you might <laughs> want to know that. Like, she just comes in and is like, bam, I'm amazing. I Pretty love much. it. They get the note from Carol and they immediately know it's fake. They take it to the first elder who confirms that it's fake, but struggles to believe that she could be being held by a sensor. Who else does he think has her? <laughs> Another human. I mean, seriously, you just can't make this up. But someone did. Uh, Is this where we get our discussion about maybe you shouldn't trust people all the time without getting to know them? It's somewhere in this episode. Yeah, if it's not now, it's soon. So the important lesson of this episode for the kids. Uh, this, this is this kind of gets painful. So. Yeah, let's keep going. Let's just get through it. So John comes to the rescue of Carol. Carol and the second elder's minion are taken to the first elder, and the second elder promptly throws his minion under the bus again, which kind of makes you wonder why his minion agreed to work for him again after being... That wasn't that wasn't his minion, that was his submissive. There we Come go. Find me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, can we also point out that I, I'd totally be fine with some hokey sci-fi names here instead of first elder, second elder. Yeah. They could have names, but they're calling them by their titles. I mean, that's just censorite, like, civilization. They don't have names. They just have titles. Maybe. So Ian and the Doctor are lost in the aqueducts at the same time, and they find they something find moving, them. and it turns out to be another human. <laughs> It's one of the survivors from the previous expedition, and none of us are surprised. None of us. Ugh. The title of this episode is just going to be... <laughs> okay, so they find another human. Yep. They're going to be taken to where all the other ones are. So I actually thought the sets in the aqueduct were very well realised. They look great. I agree. Here is where we get the tie-in historically to the concept of people from a previous, like, war or conflict being underground, not knowing that the conflict is pretty much past. Right. So I don't know if, if any of you have seen the TV version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but um, the commander and his people really reminded me of the kind of rather posh people who settle on, on the new newly formed Earth in that show. They're utterly deluded, and they're just kind of upper class and bumbling. And yet, somehow they've managed to start wiping out the indigenous people of the planet. Well, it's it's funny to me as when they lead the humans out of the caves. I like that the first two kind of like henchmen humans, like immediately when they walk out, there's a sensorite arm in front of them. They, just, they don't even like like fight or anything. They're like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> they're, just, they're just like, oh, boy. Can't believe we fell for this. We have a posh bloke fighting a war, uh, a war for minerals. It's very British Empire. He's bonkers. Like, as they're about to head out, he turns to one of his cronies and says, Assemble the men. Well, there's only one more of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether that was a, a discrepancy between the script and how this ended up being made. Or whether that's just intended to show that this guy is completely batshit insane. Finally, they're, they're captured, and... And they get to send them back. I mean, they, they the sensorites say, like, all right, well, even though these people have been poisoning us, sure, just get out of here. But I, I just find it interesting that after this whole thing about the sensorites saying they know about the molybdenum, we can't let them go. They just say, okay, bye. Much like us, they were just ready for it to be over. Oh my god, they really were. <laughs> well, maybe it's because, you know, after me and the TARDIS crew, they realized maybe there's some hope for humans. They're not all going to be just awful. You're reaching so, so hard. So anyway, they let them go. Um, our evil bad guy is evil is 
apparently exiled, but that's off screen, so we don't even get that. And we have the first Doctor, or the Doctor, I should say, turning around and saying, you didn't kill him. That shows great promise for the future of your people. And that, to me, kind of just sounded like him saying, congratulations on not being a savage. <laughs> yeah. Pats him on the head. Uh, <laughs> it's just so patronizing. So they all get into the TARDIS and leave. And we get the revelation that Susan's psychic abilities were enhanced by the sense sphere and she won't be able to continue with them. And so that's all of her character development ended from this episode and just kind of thrown over your shoulder, which actually is something that uh, Sandifer talks about a lot. She says, you know, as soon as she is back in the TARDIS, it's back to normal. With it being made explicit that her psychic powers will fade, the Doctor makes vague promises to work on the abilities when they return to their home world, but it's obvious that this is not going to happen and Susan is not going to grow up. We, I cannot believe we did not mention that I'm pretty sure there was mention of Gallifrey. Not by name. Not by name, okay, but the description was still consistent. Yeah, Susan talks about her planet with the orange sky um, when she's talking to, I think, the first elder, and even talks about being a little homesick, so she wants to belong somewhere. It feels like we're being prepared for a potential departure of Susan. I think it was by this point they were beginning to start talking about the prospective season two. I don't think it had been greenlit yet. But in their early discussions, they decided that either one of either Barbara or Susan would have to go. Of course, they choose the women. And how dare they try to get rid of Barbara? I, I don't think it was a hard choice. <laughs> and, and I like Carol Ann Ford when they give her something to work with. But ugh. I mean, in general, this story, she has been so much better. You know, that's something that I think ultimately leads to Susan leaving is... And, and the decision being made easy as to which one of them should go, Carol Ann Ford starts complaining about the material she's given and the characterization of Susan. So even Carol Ann Ford is unhappy at the treatment of the character. Don't blame her. Speaking of leaving, the doctor just threatened to kick Ian out the next place they land. <laughs> it's so much fun. They're back to their squabbling. I love it. So I, I, I really love how that plays out because the doctor says that he can't steer the ship. Then Ian basically says, well, yes, you can't steer the ship. And the Doctor's like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. It's, it's amazing. And that is how we end this marvelous story that we have all loved so much. Damn right. Before we go ahead and reveal our ratings, let's do our metrics. Yeah, what are our metrics now? So we'll start with the Susan freakout count. Over to you, Julie. Is there anything this story that has upped the count? She had a slight subdued version of yelling grandfather in the first episode, so Strangers in Space. So we might count that as 0.5 because it wasn't as stellar of a performance. And then she had another one in episode 35, Kidnap, when she found the doctor after he had been knocked out. We'll go with 1.5. Wow. Do you have the running total? 39 and a half. Ooh, we're one off 40. Will we get to 50 before we before she gets written out? Stay tuned. All right, so we have the Ian murder count. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, team, but I don't think Ian murdered anyone this time around. I think you're right. No. He almost got murdered himself. Good job, Ian, on not succumbing to bloodlust this time but around. But he really wanted to. They got mad and the doctor told him no. He did. And then finally we have the camp count. Well, I believe there was a count of at least one, right? I'm going to add the commander to that as well. You know, he's very over the top. He's utterly deluded. I think that the actor, John Bailey, is really chewing the scenery when he shows up. And he'll come back to Doctor Who a couple of times. But I'm, I'm going to count him in the camp count. So we're, we're up to two here, which I think brings us to a running total of five. All right. Let's go ahead and rate the story. And since Riley enjoys this one so much, let's let's start with the one vote that I know is going to be good. Over to you, Riley. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Your Honor, what can I say about the sense right? Is their face look like it's been chopped up and rearranged and placed haphazardly back upon their face? Sure. Is there no consistency of the logic of their plots or schemes? Also true. 
but you cannot deny their heart. You cannot deny their wanting to find us. All right, geez, I can't do it. All right, it's it's just got some fun stuff in it. It's not as bad as everyone's saying. I I I promise you, it's 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 not terrible. Just enjoy the funny base monsters. Enjoy the suspense of the first two episodes and the episode where the doctor goes down to the aqueduct and now if you'll allow me before i give my rating out of 10 i'd like to break into a song i said i get up in the morning slaving for crystal water so that every onesie can be worn oh no the sense rides seven out of ten snug onesies awesome thank you for the song Mr. Don. Oh, oh God. It's not completely terrible in that there are some really good ideas in here. They are executed poorly. The script is padded out and there's really just no logic to it. I'm glad to see that Russell Davis went back and mined some good stuff out of it for the Ood. But it's just frustrating to watch and honestly kind of boring in quite a few places. I'm going to give it uh, three out of ten questionable metal things on foreheads. <laughs> Julie? Kind of give you a thought process of where I'm at. I had quite a few notes that said, I watched this entire episode with my dog playing with a squeaky toy in the background, and I didn't care. It's boring in in a good number of parts. It did not keep me interested throughout most of it. So much of it didn't make any sense. And, I, I mean, my thoughts were pretty well known. And Barbara wasn't in it for some of it, which I also thought was a hindrance. So I am going to go with four round shoes. Out of 10. Okay, so, yeah. Um, I think there's a good idea somewhere in here. It's horrendously padded. It's badly paced. It feels like it could do with maybe at least two more rounds of editing to get it into something that would have actually been a good story. The idea be behind a, a psychic race that is somehow dangerous is a good one. I like the notion that there's a human conspiracy to kill them off as well. It just, it, it doesn't feel like it quite works at this point. It doesn't feel cohesive. And for me, I'm, I'm with Julian that I found it very boring. I'm also going to go, I'm going to follow Don and go for three doses of Deadly Nightshade out of a potential 10. We almost have a complete reversal from last time. Last time round, Riley was the only one to not rate the Aztecs, and the rest of us loved it. And this time round, Riley, you're the only one really rating the Sensorites. I am a contrarian, what can I say? One thing I wanted to touch on before we call it a day is, while this might not have been very good, there are some elements that I think make it a rather important story in the overall development of Doctor Who, and I wanted to see if you guys... Agree. I mean, firstly, there's the fact that the Doctor's a much softer character up until the, the final cliffhanger where he threatens to throw Ian out of the TARDIS. But, you know, he's coming in and he, by the time he finds a cure for the disease, he doesn't have to stick around and find the root cause. They, they can theoretically live on, right? Just utilizing the cure whenever any of the sensorites get sick. But he decides to stay for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. So I think that's a huge divergence from what we've seen in terms of the previous dynamic. And um, I think it's a show, it's a sign that the show is really moving in a different direction and closer to the Doctor Who that people see on TV today. Well, I mean, it's the first sign, I mean, as has been said on ad nauseum recently with the new season, Doctor Who is a show that has changed a lot through time is a show about change. This episode is the first step of a change of the dynamics, the change of or in in how the characters behave compared to all everything we've seen previously. 
And I, I think to that point, you know, this is the first real story where we see the Doctor driving the plot rather than Barbara. And admittedly, through most of that, uh, most of this story, that's out of necessity because Jacqueline Hill's obviously on her on her vacation. It marks a shift in how the show is structured. This is a concept that Tapwood and Lawrence Miles buy into heavily, and they they even go as far as to say, and I quote. This is quite possibly the most important Doctor Who story of all. He elects to go into a hazardous place and save a planet because he's good. And it's at this precise point that Doctor Who, as we understand it, comes into existence. And you guys are giving it low ratings. What can I say? Important does not mean good. (laughs) That was the point I was trying to make. Exactly. Well, I think, unless anyone has anything else to say, that that is all all we have time for this evening. Thank you for listening. Join us next time round as we discuss The Reign of Terror, the final story of season one. Thank you and goodbye. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippak, Riley Schreck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Makes No Censorites, was recorded on Friday, February the 1st, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. And always remember, just because the people that you can't tell apart from each other also can't tell each other apart, it's not any less racist. <laughs>